Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. Today, I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, we are going to talk a little about why herbicides fail. Now, very commonly, you're going to hear all kinds of great things about herbicides. Oh, this one's so good on this weed, and this one is uh, going to save your farm, and this one's cheap, and this one is new, and you hear all of that. You hear a lot of positive things about herbicides, but one of the things that I personally have always enjoyed here on Ag PhD is we talk about the things you got to watch out for, the downsides to all this stuff. So how you figure out... Um, how you well all the propaganda that's out there let's put it that way and how you see through those things so we're going to talk a little about why herbicides fail today on the show if you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's going on in your farm our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD that's 844-442-4743 you can also email us radio at agphd.com we will get to your questions later in the show during our Ag PhD mailbag time. And you can also send us a note on Twitter, Ag PhD Media, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. All right, so I'll just give you a few things here to start out the show when we start talking about why do herbicides fail. Um, it really depends on the herbicide. So we'd have to get specific to herbicides. So let me just take a product category in general. Let's talk about the pre-emerge herbicides. Why do they fail? We did see some failures this year. Herbicides typically do what we expect them to do when we have the conditions that are correct to make them work. Okay, so one of the conditions we need is moisture. The way that most of these residual herbicides are going to get into the plant, the pre-emerge residual herbicides anyway, they're going to get into the plant through the root system of the plant or through the shoot. So we have to look at, all right, where is the shoot? Where is the root system? How actually does that herbicide physically get into the plant? So what we have to have out there is a lethal dose always. That's the number one reason why a lot of herbicides are going to fail is because we don't, we simply don't deliver a lethal dose to the growing point or growing points. Keep in mind that grass plants are going to have one growing point. Broadleaf plants are going to have multiple growing points. Sometimes they might have 10, 20, 50 growing points. So it can be a real challenge with broadleaves because they have lots of growing points. Also, perennial weeds are going to typically have many more growing points and extensive root systems. So they are more difficult to kill. So the rate is obviously important, but the moisture is the other big thing. And what it really takes is if you've got a very dry soil, like let's say, for example, this spring, the top couple inches Around here, we had a lot of 90-degree days, which are uncommon early in the year. 90-degree days, and you go, whoa, that topsoil dried out real fast. Almost no rain for a while. 90-degree temps, 40-mile-an-hour winds, lots of sun. Okay, if there's very little moisture in that top couple inches of soil, now you have to have more rain. A lot of companies will say, oh, we only need a quarter inch of rain or a half inch of rain to activate our herbicide. That's all nonsense. No way. None of them take that little amount of rain. Now, if there's already very adequate subsoil moisture and cooler temperatures and uh, cloudy days and things like that, it's possible you might luck out and a quarter inch or half an inch could work. But 
when we start talking about why herbicides fail, what what it comes down to is we're not looking for the 99% of the time when the herbicide works okay. We're talking here about the 1% of the time when the herbicides fail. And what we try to do with our recommendations is we're trying to make sure you understand what it takes to truly, truly make that thing work. So for example, with a lot of these pre-emerge herbicides, we'll say, all right, your number one thing you can do to make the herbicide work better is incorporate it. And I get a lot of no-till and strip-till guys that go, well, I didn't realize you hated no-till, Brian. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, it has nothing to do with that, okay? I'm just trying to help you understand if you lay the herbicide on the soil surface, now it takes more moisture to get it down into that root zone or down into the seed zone to get it into the shoot or the roots. So that's all it amounts to. So if you're in no-till, as opposed to if you till the herbicide in, it takes more rain to activate your herbicide, okay? I, there's nothing wrong with no-till or strip-till. We've done both of those things over the years. You can make them both work fine, okay? But uh, incorporation, number one thing you could do. Second thing you can do is get the herbicide out there way in advance. So in our region of the country, we're super cold. The ground thaws out usually in about mid-April. If I can spray right then, or even right as it's thawing, uh, then I've got more time as opposed to if I plant and then I spray. When I plant, let's say the first of May, and then I spray right afterwards, I could have rain pretty soon because those weeds are going to be coming. If I had sprayed two weeks earlier and the ground is literally just thawing and my soil temp is 37 degrees, I got some time to get the rain before the weeds start germinating. So those are big things with the pre-emerge herbicides. The post-emerge herbicides, I guess the first thing that pops into my head here is spray coverage. Not all herbicides require fantastic spray coverage, but many do. So I, I think about Liberty, Bassagrand, Gramoxone. Uh, there are a number of herbicides, and it would be the same thing with fungicides too. They require fantastic coverage. Okay, so when we talk Liberty, Gramoxone, Bassagran, all those con Buctrol, all those contact killers, we want more water, more spray pressure, smaller droplets. You do that and you thoroughly coat each leaf, you will get a lot better kill. So many times, what like for Darren and me, we've been agronomists full-time. I've been a full-time agronomist now for 30 years, and I've been out on a lot of fields where things didn't work well. The first response is always blame the herbicide. And what my point here is, and what we'll talk about throughout the course of the day today is, the herbicide probably is gonna work pretty well most of the time. But you have to look at the weather, you have to look at the rate, you gotta look at how you sprayed it, the, the conditions, I mean, uh, the, the height of the weed, the tolerance of that weed to that herbicide. There are a lot of other factors built in. We want to help you get the best success on your farm, get the most bang for the buck on the herbicide dollar you spend. We'll talk about it on our show today. Sound the foghorn. Because there's a better way to control frog eye leaf spot in your soybean fields. Froghorn fungicide from UPL. Froghorn not only has a unique name, it has two modes of action that deliver excellent disease control. With Froghorn, you get healthier soybeans and better yields at harvest time, and you won't be subject to strobe resistance. So get Froghorn and keep frog eye leaf spot quiet all season long. To learn more, talk to your retailer or UPL sales representative. Always read and follow label directions. Worried about glyphosate-resistant weeds and grasses in your corn? 
Unleash the power of new Impact Z herbicide and get the early post-application advantage you've been waiting for. Save $3 per acre when you combine Impact Z with a qualifying insecticide purchase. Go to buy2save3.com for details. Buy2save3 is a service mark and Impact Z is a trademark owned by AMVAC Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmyourway. Oh my goodness, did you see Bob's gorgeous soybean rows? Um, totally. I couldn't believe how clean, weed-free his entire field looked. I'm like, so jealous. I heard he started using this new post-applied residual herbicide called Perpetual, and it's burned down in long-lasting residual powers, making his soybeans like literally the talk of the town. Ah, so Perpetual's his secret. Yep. Talk to your retailer or visit valent.com slash Perpetual to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, and we're talking about why do herbicides fail? It's chemistry, right? It should be pretty predictable, and in many cases it is, but obviously there's a lot of things that go into making these these products work well out in the field. And in North Dakota, they've had some crazy weather here the last couple of years and certainly some different situations than most guys were used to. We've got our friend Eric up in North Dakota out with us right now. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you, Darren? You know, we're doing pretty well down here, and I would say this. Our herbicides, for the most part, have worked pretty well this year, but we've had a little better growing season than some of the guys up in North Dakota have had with crops still out there from last year and all the situations with prevent plant being a huge percentage of many counties. What are you seeing in your area, and what are some of the things that, that you'd say in terms of herbicide performance from this year? Um. Well, just to start off, I guess the last – uh, the last, I'd say, four years when the soybean trees have taken off, you know, from 10% up to, my guess is now it'd be 60 70%, maybe even higher. Uh, we've had good rain the last four years, so they've worked phenomenal. Well, this year we, <clears throat> excuse me, went into a stretch of probably 15 to 18 days where we didn't get any rain or maybe got a tenth or two tenths or something. So um, we just got about three two and a half to three and a half inches of rain sunday night and you know into yesterday so a lot of them herbicides laid there for 15 days and i just you know we had some pretty warm hot days sunny days and just tell guys not to expect the what you've had in the past with with control with the authority products or or anything along that line yeah, there's been a lot of spotty rains this year, and I know what you're talking about on our farm, too. We were really needing this last rainfall that we got. Fortunately, it was was a nice one. wasn't one that came with great big storms on our farm anyway. When you look at that, when we get the little rains, and I know a lot of these advertisements that you hear, oh, we only need a quarter-inch rain or we need a half-an-inch rain. If you're really dry, 
I sure haven't found that to to make products work 100 uh, percent. What do you think? What? How do you judge that? If if hey, this was enough rain to make things really work. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the soil moisture too. Um, I have a I have a program we use uh, use uh, ten twelve ounces of verdict and a and a uh, rebate of Keystone and RNS Extra to get up to that half pound atrazine. I've been doing that pre on conventional corn and then a portion of the regular just other corn acres to spread my risk out. And anyway, we did that this year and um, on that same percentage of acres and. Uh, it's actually, I mean, we had a 1,500th and a quarter inch in between there, but on separate times. And, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's it's uh, much better than the alternative of spending that $20 for grass control on conventional corn. And um, now that we have this three inches, you can't get back in there right away. So, I'm, yeah, I might not have got the $20 of that treatment out of it for weed control, but it's it's saving me and bushels lost right now and heavier weed spots for sure. No doubt about that. The skips are really showing up. I've seen a few growers that have been brave enough to post those sprayer skips online, but for the most part, we try to hide those and don't let anybody know. But when you go out to fields, a lot of times you can find those and there's no way you can tell me they, that growers aren't giving up just a ton of yield in those spots where we don't get good good control at the prees you mentioned the rainfall and that's this is one thing i like about the prees we get a big rain hey it's not the end of the world that we can't get out there right away because there aren't hardly any weeds coming compared to where we didn't get that pre down and we're relying on the post treatment uh talk to us about wheat in your area do you see weed control being a challenge there i know we're kind of talking some different timings when you look at wheat compared to corn and soybeans um, every, I mean, I'd guess 80, 90% of the acres get huskier has to complete just because of the water hemp in our area in the soybean. We usually follow soybeans. So that population is there and guys try to wait a little bit later to get, you know, more water hemp to come because you don't have much residual, you know, if any with, with those two products. So, um, we were, we're right at that time right now. Some guys sprayed, uh, we had pretty windy days Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but some guys were on the early side of it and got the wheat sprayed who got the wheat in early, but um, there's still quite a few where if the wheat was a little bit later, you know, waiting for fields to dry out when they're seeding them, that they're in that, um, it's going to be getting close to the end of it by the time they can get back into the fields, you know, next week. Yeah, it's going to be going to be a little bit of a challenge, but that's just one of the curveballs that we're getting in 2020. Talking with Eric up in North Dakota. Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing a little bit about what's happening up there. Good luck here uh, this next week. Hopefully you guys can get their spraying done. Yeah, you mentioned curveballs. Hopefully we can start to see them pretty soon on, <laughs> yeah, on TV. <laughs> I'd like to see a little baseball, too. It does make time in the sprayer go a little faster when you got a ball game that you can listen to. No it, doubt about it. It definitely does. I miss that. You have a good day. You bet. You too, Eric. Uh, got another Eric online with us. Uh, it's Eric Prosco down in Georgia at University of Georgia. Eric, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. How y'all doing today? You know, pretty good. One of the things that I like when we when we talk to you, your crop's way ahead of ours, and so you've probably already learned a few things this year that maybe maybe we can learn from you and not make the same mistakes, or if you found something that really, really worked, we still have time to accomplish it. What are you learning this year? Has there been any real challenges or, or new things that you're seeing in 2020? Well, we've been dealing with some weather issues. Uh, we've had some, some uh, 
some higher rainfall and cooler temperatures. And whenever you have those, that always makes uh, presents a challenge for weed control, especially if you can't get back in a field because it's just rain. I just talked to somebody earlier today. They had 12 inches of rain over the weekend. Oh, my so, goodness. Uh, that's hard, hard, hard to uh, get in a field and do things when we get that kind of rain. But, you know, we're, we're, we're doing okay. I say weed control in general is pretty good. Uh, we're having some issues here and there because of the weather-related uh, problems uh, that, that come with it. I, I did want to share something with you since I, I heard the, a couple of you talking earlier. A uh, neat little study that I did this year in corn. You know, we don't grow a lot of corn in Georgia, but I work on corn. And one of the things that's always bothered me is you know, getting into fields later and everybody wants to try to make an application later for whatever reason. And so this year we did a little study. I've always told people, you know, as that corn gets bigger, it, and you talked about coverage earlier, that it's hard to get coverage in that middle. Well, how much coverage do we actually lose when we go uh, spray on a larger plant? So this year, working with a commercial sprayer in a grower's field, we actually looked at coverage and comparing coverage um, when, say, we're spraying corn in the V4 stage as opposed to the V6 stage. We actually saw about 40% less coverage when we sprayed at V6, which is around 30 days after planting, versus uh, V4 stage. So that was uh, a number that I never had before. Uh, but now I've been telling people, you know, you're going to lose 40% of your coverage if you're spraying corn that's getting kind of at least 40%. So getting in, in fields early is, is uh, you hear weed scientists say that all the time, earlier is always better. I know a lot of fields I've walked over the years where a grower was not satisfied with weed control. Many of those weeds were underneath leaves and we just didn't get mm-hmm. coverage over there. So I think you're absolutely right. That's great that we've got, got a number that we can put to that. Hey, Eric, yeah. was that 30 inch yeah. rows? Uh, no, we're on 36-inch rows. Oh, on uh, actually, 30s. it was a tw- Go ahead. right. So we're actually in that field because uh, we plant a lot of twin rows in Georgia because of our peanut production. So that field was actually a twin row corn, where the two outside rows would be 36, and then the two inner rows would be somewhere between seven and nine inches on the inside of those. And that's sort of a typical planting pattern for us with peanuts. So yeah, uh, some corn growers are using that since they got that planter already. You know, they can plant corn uh, in a twin row, and there's been a little bit of yield bump bump from uh, planting in twin rows in corn. Interesting. Now, you mentioned some of these stressful conditions, and when we don't have actively growing weeds, it's tough to get them under control. And when the crop is suffering, that's a good sign the weeds are probably having a tough time, too. Oh, for sure. You know, I always tell everybody the two big enemies for weed, weed scientists, especially when we're talking about post-emergent herbicides, is uh, big weeds and dry weather. And of course, we're not in a, in a we're in the opposite wet weather now. But uh, it's, I have no doubt that we'll be getting into some dry weather pretty soon. But uh, certainly, when uh, weeds are under stress for for various reasons, they're they're harder to control, and it just compounds everything. Especially if we get bigger weeds and dry weather, that even makes it worse. That's a great, concise message uh, to leave us with. Big weeds and dry weather, that's what you don't want to have. We're talking to Eric Prosco, University of Georgia. Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. All right, y'all. Have a great day. You bet. You too. Listening to Ag PhD Radio. We'll be right back after this. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. 
featuring Extendamax herbicide with VaporGrip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready-to-Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Sound the foghorn. Because there's a better way to control frog eye leaf spot in your soybean fields. Froghorn fungicide from UPL. Froghorn not only has a unique name, it has two modes of action that deliver excellent disease control. With Froghorn, you get healthier soybeans and better yields at harvest time, and you won't be subject to strobe resistance. So, get Froghorn and keep frog eye leaf spot quiet all season long. To learn more, talk to your retailer or UPL sales representative. Always read and follow label directions. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. When it comes to leading herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Cheetah, a high-quality glufosinate herbicide made right here in the USA. Now for use on a wide variety of crops with glufosinate-resistant traits, including enlist crops. Its novel mode of action will manage existing or emerging herbicide resistance and provide fast, effective results. This means you can focus more on profitability and less on weeds. New Farm and Cheetah Herbicide, here to help. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're taking your calls and questions throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head out to Colorado. We've got Ron Meyer with Colorado State with us right now. Ron, great to have you on. Thanks for being here. Hey, yeah, good afternoon. Good to be with you again. All right, a little bit of a change. We were talking to Eric Prostko down at University of Georgia, and he said their biggest enemies are big weeds and dry weather, and Colorado definitely gets both of those. Oh yeah, we do. Yeah, we uh, yeah. Out, out here in the West, we get about uh, we average about seventeen inches of rain per year, and so uh, rainfall is just sacred to us out here. You know, when we see these weeds going through drought conditions, it seems like they can still live, they can still survive, but man, it's tough to get a herbicide in there. What do you do with those? I, I know you run into those dry spells and, and you can certainly get hot there too. How do you advise growers to handle that? Yeah, so we we, we tell growers, uh, you get after those weeds early. So when they're in the seedling stage, you can see them and they show themselves. And if they're tough weeds like kochia is, 
then get after them early. And uh, there are some weeds we even uh, advocate uh, do a pre-emergent application. If you know you have got a tough spot in, in a field and you know what the weed is, uh, get after it before the weed emerges. And kochia is, is one of our worst weeds. Palmer amaranth is becoming number two very fast. And so we like to get after those pre-emergent. And, uh, you know, sometimes that gets away from growers and well, pretty soon you've got weeds emerging. And so we tell guys uh, when they're small, get after them. Because when they get big and we're in the middle of the summer, um, controlling them just gets really difficult. Yeah, it sure can. Is rainfall really one of the tough things once you get out into the season? Or or, or what becomes, is it just simply weed size that's, that's the biggest challenge? It, it can be both. So rainfall is really the, the primary factor that, that affects uh, you know, the ability to kill weeds. And so we know that, you know, taller weeds that are moisture stressed, uh, they get tough and, and we've sprayed them and, you know, and, and they just get tougher to control once they get some size to them and some stress to them because they're not taking in um, the product that you're putting on if they're sitting in dry soil. So that's really the key. Uh, you know, if it's really dry, hot and dry, and you got tall weeds, you might be better off uh, waiting for a rain to show up before you spray. You know, you mentioned kochia, and I know a lot of our friends, as you head further south in the country, don't know how tough this weed is. I, I think the broadleaf weeds, when they get so many different growing points on them, that can be a real challenge. We see a lot of weeds where we burn the top off and don't kill the bottom, and our first look at that is, well, it must be rate. We must not have put enough rate out there. Is it more than that? Uh, it is, yeah. So, you know, on a 95-degree day in July and you've got stressed kochia out there, they're just hanging in there. They're not really doing much respirating and they're not taking much in through the leaves. Uh, the stomates are closed and they just get tough. So you can put a pretty high rate of uh, pesticide on those weeds and it's really, it, it's going to be difficult to control them. So early uh, weed control is always better. And then uh, if things get away from you, you might be just better off waiting for a, a little bit of moisture to show up. When those weeds wake up and start respirating and the stomates open up again, then you can get after them with a herbicide. Now, many growers will say crop rotation is one of their best things where they can use different modes of action. Do you see modes of action getting overused in your state? Are there some certain crops that you say, man, we need some more alternatives for? Yeah, we're there in eastern Colorado now. We grow a lot of grass crops. So we have corn, we have wheat, uh, milo. They're all in the grass family. And so, uh, you know, that can be problematic for us for some fields. And although the toolbox is pretty big across all those crops for broadleaf weed control, um, I caution folks, don't use the same broadleaf weed control across all crops because that's just asking for trouble. And um, it would be good if we could get a, uh, uh, a rotation in there that uh, would include sunflowers or um, soybeans would be another good one to, to jump in there with. You know, you mentioned the grass crops, and one thing that we see a lot is growers mixing broadleaf herbicides and grass herbicides and tank mixing four or five things in at the same time. Is antagonism a real issue, and how do growers in Colorado work around that? Yeah, so antagonism can be a problem. And, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, there's some 
crops we grow where we're trying to control grasses and different broadleaves and some products work better than others, we're dumping things in. Um, I, I just tell folks, do a jar test. Um, so whatever you're going to mix in the tank, mix in a small container first um, at um, appropriate levels, so much smaller amounts, and let that jar set for an hour or so or you know, take a look at it, see if it's doing any gelling or if they're, uh, if the mixing is separating. And so that, uh, that can tell you if there's uh, physical antagonism. The other piece to that is uh, chemical antagonism. So if what you're putting in there, uh, such as a clay-based pesticide, uh, and then you're dumping Roundup in it too, that clay is going to tie up the Roundup. So that's important to know. Talking with Ron Meyer at Colorado State University. Ron, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing your time and expertise on the show today. Good luck to you here as the spring heads on. Hey, thanks. Good to be with you again. Darren, as we were talking about all these issues, just a couple, well, I have have many more that I would mention. And by the way, if you have any questions or concerns about how herbicides work and especially why they fail, just call us here at the Morton Studio, 844-44-AG-PHD. But a couple things that I've, I've been talking to farmers and agronomists about just literally this week. First thing, volunteer corn herbicide. Why do volunteer corn herbicides fail sometimes? Well, number one, you didn't pick the right product. So, for example, a lot of people say, well, I want clethodim because it's cheap. Yeah, it's cheap, but it stinks. It's terrible on volunteer corn. It's really good on grass, but it's terrible on volunteer corn. Fusilade's way better and a sure two or secures the generic that's really close to as good as fusilate but not clothidum clothidum's terrible on volunteer corn so that's the first problem with the volunteer corn thing the second problem is that people use non-ionic surfactant instead of using crop oil if you want better activity out of your volunteer corn herbicide use crop oil and then that brings me to my next thing which is spray adjuvants The reason why companies don't throw the spray adjuvant in in the first place is, number one, it may cause a problem or settle out in that that mix, but two, you need to change the spray adjuvant depending on what you're mixing it with. So, for example, if I put the volunteer corn herbicide with foliar fertilizer, um, let's say it's Liberty, and I'm just trying to think of anything else hot. Lorsban. Okay, so I got oil in Lorsban. There's oil like a in Liberty. <laughs> right. And and the foliar fertilizer is really going to heat it up. Well, then yes, in that case, I'm probably going to use non-ionic surfactant. I'm going to be careful with what I'm doing because I have so many other oils in that tank. So you see where I'm going with this. This is where you need to work with an agronomist or call us and we'll give you a recommendation based on your weather conditions, your situation, whatever you're mixing together. Next, antagonism. Darren brought this up, but grass and broadleaf herbicides very often fight each other and one can degradate the other. That's why they aren't they don't come as a premix too sometimes. So just as an example, here's a new thing that you might not have done before. Enlist crops are getting big. So, I I mean, lots of acres. They're getting in lots of acres this year. You may never have sprayed 2,4-D over the top of soybeans before. Well, you think about, oh, no big deal. I've sprayed 2,4-D my whole life. Yes, I realize that. But have you ever put 2,4-D with a volunteer corn killer before? Probably not. Here's what you're going to learn. If you you don't do this right, you're going to go, whoa, my volunteer corn herbicide really didn't work this time. 
Yeah, it's because the 2,4-D eats up the volunteer corn herbicide. So you've got to basically increase your rate by 50% on the volunteer corn herbicide. Now, the good news is you're only going to spend an extra dollar. But if you want to tank mix, you have to increase the rate of the volunteer corn herbicide because you're putting it with 2,4-D. It'd be the same thing if you were putting it with dicamba. It hurts the volunteer corn herbicide. Then the last thing I'll mention before I break here is water issues. We see lots of water issues. Hard water is a problem, not just calcium and magnesium. But I also want you to think about how much iron's in your water and how much copper is in your water. Those things can all have an impact. And then the other water issue that we commonly see is chlorine. Chlorine jacks the pH up to 8.5 or 9, number one. And just having that chlorine in there in general causes problems. You can turn it to chloride. There are products you can use that are super inexpensive to fix your water issues. We'll be right back with more after this. Hey, Adam. New drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. Look out for that tree. In the power lines! Oh, it's in for the house. There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds. Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at perfectmatchherbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions. The laser. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic pesticides from Atticus, LLC. Atticus offers a vast portfolio of branded generic fungicides, herbicides, and insecticides for row crops. Atticus puts grassroots experience and common sense logic to work to make product selection easier and on your terms. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. The Pentair Hypro Express Flush Valve reduces plugged nozzles and improves cleanout of your spray boom. Simply flush boom sections with a quarter-turn ball valve and leave your tools in the cab. Plus, installation is easy. Simply remove the existing end cap plug and replace with the Hypro Express Flush Valve. Learn more at Pentair.com Hypro. How much money are you leaving in the bin? Get your grain in ideal condition with the Grain Temp Guard Monitoring System from Farm Shop MFG. And with deep preseason discounts on all Grain Temp Guard units, now is the best time to upgrade. Order today at farmshopmfg.com. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop, and grow your legacy all the way down to the last drop agroliquid precision crop nutrition apply less expect more find a retailer at agroliquid.com you deserve to have a building that will last for generations with more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers morton buildings is the industry leader you can trust Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings Craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. If you're looking to get the most out of your foliar nutrition and fungicide programs, ask your ag retailer about Nutex EDA from Sipcam Agro. Nutex EDA has been proven to increase foliar micronutrient tissue levels and maintain those levels for an extended period of time. When tank mixed with fungicides, Nutex EDA helps support plant health, resulting in higher quality and yields. Nutex EDA is an affordable and effective solution that should be part of every grower's high yield toolbox. 
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty, along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today talking about why herbicides fail. Again, if you've got a question for us, it's 844-44-AG-PHD or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. One of the last things that I want to mention here today talking about why herbicides fail is it's too cold. Now, this one, in my opinion, does not get enough publicity, and we're talking basically about the foliar herbicides here, the post-emerge herbicides. So I'll just give you a quick example. A lot of people in no-till or strip-till, like us, we do burn down. And when you're out there spraying burn down, it's early in the spring a lot of times. If the weather's too cold, here's the problem. The plant isn't actively growing. And this is one where I just remember when I was a very young agronomist, and I'm like, this just doesn't make sense to me. If I've got a plant that's not growing very well, you would think it'd be easier to kill, right? It's already half dead, (laughs) so it shouldn't take much to finish it off. But unfortunately, that's not the way most herbicides work. Here's how most herbicides work. They have to get into the plant, and they're going to go in through the leaf. So they have to get absorbed. Then they have to move physically inside the plant, move to the growing point or growing points, And when they arrive at the growing point or points, there has to be a lethal dose there. If you don't have all three of those things, then you don't get a kill. So, for example, let's say you had a frost last night. The leaf tissue is severely damaged already today if you had a frost last night. Okay, If that happens, then how much is going to truly get absorbed into the plant when you spray? Not much. Not much. So what are your odds that you're going to deliver a lethal dose to the growing point or growing points? Um, Slim to none. So don't spray if you had frost last night. Even if the weather is just cold, and I say this all the time with Roundup, if the nighttime temp's below 50 degrees, you're not going to get the same performance as, as if the nighttime temp was above 50. And so we'll tell people bump the rate, and they go, well, it doesn't say that on the label, and I've never seen Look. Again, I've been an agronomist for 30 years. We've tracked Roundup complaints for years. Most of the Roundup complaints come from when the weather's too cold, not from resistant weeds, but from when the weather's too cold. Because we just all have, over the years, thought, well, Roundup, I mean, Roundup never fails if, you know, as long as it's not a resistant weed. So we can spray anytime we want and it's going to work. No, it just doesn't work that way. You've got to bump the rate, or if you want to just save the money, just wait until the weather warms up and you will have much better performance. So getting herbicides to work sometimes can be challenging, especially like in our geography where sometimes we're too dry, sometimes we're too cold. Um, it, it's it, it's it's just, a it's like I say, a challenge. So Again, if you've got questions about any herbicide, you want to figure out how do I make this stuff work for sure, that's what we're here for. We're trying to help you. For So when you spend thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars on herbicide, you go, man, that was great. I'm glad I made that investment. I got it to work as good as it possibly could, and now I'm happy. Last thing here that I will throw out, the best weed killer is not a herbicide. The best weed killer is always crop canopy. So we always want to think about how do I make my crop as great as it can be so it can literally choke out my weeds. I don't ever want to use a herbicide. I only 
use herbicides because I have to. So do everything you can to raise a fantastic crop without the, even thinking about the herbicide. Now, I'm not saying don't use herbicides. I'm just saying think about how can I make that crop big, tall, thick, bushy? How can I get it to shade that ground out as quick as possible? That's how I end up with the best weed control. Okay. Getting a lot of different questions in. Let's dive into the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag. All right. First question comes from Jeremy. He said, I've got a herbicide question for you. I'm considering my post-emerge spray options and was nonchalantly looking at the label of the seed I planted. I understood it to be Roundup Ready, but saw the Liberty Link logo also on the label. So now that appears to me it's tolerant to both herbicides. So I'm attaching a copy of the label for you. Wonder if you can help me with that. All right. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Really appreciate that. He sent in a label. It's for an AgriSure 3122A trait. So let me just tell you what that means real quick. So AgriSure, that means it comes from Syngenta. Uh, the 3122, uh, the three is just the series. That doesn't really mean anything. But the next one is one trait for Lepidoptera control, two traits for corn borer, and the third, the last number is two traits for corn rootworm. So it's got five, actually five different BT traits in it in that particular one. And yes, you're right. It is tolerant to Roundup and tolerant to Liberty. So you can spray either one of those products in there, and it should be a 5% refuge product, depending on where you're at as well. 5% refuge on the BTs, not refuge for Roundup or Liberty. Otherwise, 5% of your plants would die. But in terms of using the Liberty, the reason why that's so nice is if you have Roundup-resistant weeds, now you should be able to get them under control with that Liberty. And typically we're talking about a quart of Liberty. Make sure you're throwing in three pounds of ammonium sulfate. That really ups the performance of the Liberty. Liberty, the way it works, it it absolutely needs that ammonium sulfate. It's not a, oh, it's just an adjuvant and I'll throw it in to soften the water. No, it literally needs the ammonium sulfate. That is a component of how it actually works in the plant. Unlike with most, I mean, most of the time we throw ammonium sulfate in, it's to soften the water, lower the pH, whatever. Not in the case of Liberty. You have to have that in there. All right, next one's from Geronimo uh, from Indiana. He's got Extend Beans in 30-inch rows. He used our 3-pre program, and again, uh, if you're not familiar with that, for soybeans, we talk about a yellow metribuzin and a PPO, either Valor or Authority. Anyway, he's going to use Extend and Clethodim over the top. <laughs> Remember when I was just talking about Clethodim a minute ago? Not the best for volunteer corn. If you want to use it, you can. Just up the rate. Okay, anyway, his question is, can he add dual? Yes, you can. How big can the beans be? Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. What, what's the label on dual, Darren? And you can look that up. But let what, while you're looking that up, let me just add this. Typically V4. Yeah. Uh, so you can put a group 15 with most herbicides, but uh, we better check the, let's see, Extendamax application requirements. Um, we got to make sure that that's on label two with any group 15 you're going to use. Dual 2-magnum third trifoliate in soybeans. Okay. Uh, double check for me. Yeah, I, I don't know which formulations are approved on the Extendamax application requirements.com website. But anyway, here's my point. We like group 15s in early. Now, usually I'm talking to people about Warrant Ultra or 
uh, Anthem Max because then I get a PPO plus a Group 15, but whatever. I mean, I like Warrant, I like Zidua, I like Dual, I like Outlook. I mean, there are many different Group 15s that you could use. So yes, Dual is one of those. Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, formulations of dual here. We got that dual, are approved. Yeah, dual for two, mixing. Dual yes. two magnum and dual magnum are both both approved. So those would be products that you could use. All right. All right. What's our next uh, question? Let's get into. Let's see. Need a short one here. Um, this one comes from Matt. He said people want to work the ground to warm it up in the spring yes. and bury that residue, yes. but they don't think about what the soil temperature will be in August. That residue could help keep your ground a little cooler in the hottest part of the summer. Well, yeah, but by August, you should have crop canopy, so I don't think it's going to make any difference. The other thing is, here's another thing when you think about that, Matt. We're really hoping that a lot of that residue is gone by the time we get to August. Yep, exactly. That's already broken down, that we're utilizing those nutrients. And if honestly, if you're not breaking that residue down by that late in the season— I would be a little nervous about it. I do get your point, though, that, hey, I like having some residue out there to protect my ground. But at that point, you've got a good crop out there that's completely canopying that soil, and that's what's going to keep that soil cool. So it, it just depends on what your crop rotation is. If you say, well, I'm harvesting wheat in July, then I, I totally get that, that you want to leave that wheat stubble out there. But I think we're talking about two different things there. If you're saying instead of tilling up that ground to put corn and soybeans in, they're going to be harvested in September and October, you should leave residue out there. I really disagree with that. I think we're going to have good crop canopy that's going to shade that ground out by that point. And I think if you do have residue, it should be breaking down if you have good microbial activity and good soil health. Thanks for the comment, though. We appreciate that. We'll be right back after this. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. Oh my goodness, did you see Bob's gorgeous soybean rows? Um, totally. I couldn't believe how clean, weed-free his entire field looked. I'm like, so jealous. I heard he started using this new post-applied residual herbicide called Perpetuo, and it's burned down in long-lasting residual powers, making his soybeans like literally the talk of the town. Ah, so Perpetuo's his secret. Yep. Talk to your retailer or visit valent.com slash Perpetuo to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you to build on their foundations. At Corteva AgriScience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust, to bring new solutions, to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy all the way down to the last drop. 
AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. Stop losing money from your stored grain with the Enzone fan control system from FarmShop MFG. Hot spots and moisture in your bin can cost you thousands in lost revenue. The Enzone monitors outside conditions to run your fans exactly when you want them to, naturally bringing your grain to ideal temperature and humidity. Master bin management with the Enzone. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, where we take your calls and questions throughout the rest of the show. Phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can email us, radio at agphd.com, or find us on Twitter, Ag PhD Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty. Going from Brandon here in Minnesota, and he said, I'm sending you soil and plant tissue tests for my corn. Looks like we may be short in magnesium or sulfur by the striping on the leaves, but looking at the tests, it looks fine. What am I missing? Well, the tissue analysis that you gave us, the levels to us look really low, but on your test it says sufficient. So just for example... With zinc, I think you're at, uh, had a lot of them at about 20 parts per million on zinc. Well, what we find at that growth stage is, I know Midwest Lab says we should be 33, and I think you might even want to be higher than that. So I, I think it's just a problem of what are they calling sufficient and what are they calling low? In my opinion, it's really low. On sulfur, you're at 0.2%. And Midwest Labs at that same stage says you should be at 0.29, and I think you should be even a little higher than that. So personally, I think you got a zinc and sulfur issue out there, and I think the issue is just your lab. So yeah, it's unfortunate that that's what you're seeing, but send your samples to a different lab, and I bet you're going to see... I mean, the results will probably be the same, but you they will tell you, hey, now you're too low. So look at if you and you you should be able to contact some other labs and say, all right, at this growth stage, what's your recommendation? What do you think I should be at for a sufficient level or maybe even a high level? What should I be at for those particular nutrients? But, yeah, I don't I I don't think it's a magnesium issue. I do think you've got a sulfur and a zinc issue going on out there. Okay, thanks for the question. We appreciate that. I went from John in central Kentucky. He said, with all the milk that was being dumped across the country and people talking about it, uh, got me thinking about using it as fertilizer. Could you potentially use that as a pop-up fertilizer? Well, I don't know about a pop-up fertilizer. I don't know exactly what's in it. But would it be beneficial for your soil? Sure it would, as long as you're using it in moderation. 
Thanks for the question, John. Uh, this one comes from Tiger. He says, I see farmers installing drain tile without wrapping the tile in a cloth barrier to keep dirt and rock from clogging it. Yep. I know tile used around a lower level basement often has cloth or gravel surrounding it for this purpose. Why is it that farmers don't use the same procedure given that dirt could eventually clog the openings in the tile? Well, all tiles eventually going to get plugged. So, I mean, it's not going to last for a thousand years, probably. However, just tile put in the ground without sock around it should still last for 50 to 100 years. So I'm not too worried about it. The next generation can be concerned about it because in my lifetime, (laughs) I think I'm going to be good. But where we use the sock is where we have fine sand or silt. So in a lot of our soils around here, for example, when they're building houses, they don't put sock around that tile. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't because they're not dealing with fine sand or silt. Now, I would also say you can go to a narrow slot tile, and some people will do that rather than putting the sock around because the sock costs more money. It's going to roughly increase the cost of your tile potentially 50%. I mean, it all depends on what you're paying for the tile, but I mean, it's a lot. So you go, man, I I really don't want to spend the money unless I have to. So that's where we just say, hey, analyze the soil. If you do not have a lot of fine sand or silt, you're probably going to be okay. All right, thanks for the question. Got this one from Andrew. It says, I, oh, I'm sorry, Andy. My name's Andy. I'm in Michigan. And I want to start a strip-till corn and soybean program and also have no-till wheat in the rotation. I'm having a difficult time trying to decide if I should put my PNK down deeper in the fall with my six-shank zone-till rig yep. or mix it in the strips in the spring with a Ross and Coulter machine that I put together. I'd do or some of each. should I add the Ross and setup to the front of the planter and just apply the PNK then? I also plan on planting corn and soybeans in a twin-row format. Here's the whole thing. I'll just take you back in in history. The first guy that consistently was raising over 300 bushel corn in the United States was named uh, Herman Warsaw, and that was back in the 1970s. That was 50 years ago. The first guy consistently raising 400 plus bushel corn was back in the 80s and 90s, Francis Childs. We have soil tests from both of those guys, deep soil tests. And here's the point. Their deep fertility um, was much much better than what I commonly see in the top six inches for most farmers. If you want really high yields, long-term, a much more drought-tolerant crop, and just an overall healthier crop, you want to get some fertility down deep. So I would really encourage you, get some down there. Now, if you want to do some other stuff, uh, shallow, that's fine. But here, here's one thing you can do to prove this out to yourself. Do a soil test every two inches or maybe every three inches going all the way down to two feet in the ground. And I'm dead serious. If you do that, you're probably going to find that most all your fertility is in the top two or three inches and pretty much all the rest of it's in the next two or three inches. So my point is this. If you're already fairly well loaded up, up top, why put more out there? Start getting some down deeper. That's where the majority of your roots are is down deeper. The majority of your roots in most fields are in the four to eight inch range. So the four to eight inch range should be the most fertile, not not much less fertile than the top two or three inches. All right. Thanks for the question. Got this from Wesley in South Central Kentucky. He said, I've got 10 acres that I decided I'm going to try some intensive management on. I'm currently raising full season soybeans. My yield goal is 100 bushels. I remember you all saying that a soybean will only produce 70% of the nitrogen it needs. So I'm wondering, 
Does that mean there's only enough to produce about 70 bushel beans? If so, what's the best time and means of applying the rest of the nitrogen I'm going to need? Okay, the other nitrogen that's in the soil is, number one, carryover. There's always some nitrogen left from the year before. And number two, it comes out of the organic matter. If you are raising a full season bean, then you can take advantage of the nitrogen that's going to come out of that organic matter over the full season. And in your area, that's probably 20 to 30 pounds of nitrogen for each 1% of organic matter. So if you have 5% organic matter soil, that's 100 to 150 pounds of nitrogen. So that's great. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it does take a lot of nitrogen if you're going to be looking at 100 bushel soybeans. I'm just pulling it up on the Ag PhD fertilizer removal app here. Uh, so soybeans, for example, let's see if I can get this here. 100 bushel beans. That is... Uh, well, then I put in 200. I don't think you're going for 200 yet. 435 pounds. 435. That's a lot of nitrogen. You could certainly apply some nitrogen if you would like to. We typically see um, lower rates giving some response, especially... Well, you, I mean, just applied nitrogen in general. You'll have better success with that if you have lighter soil, you have lower organic matter, and certainly a high yield goal. Um, if you're going to put nitrogen on, I'd probably suggest putting it on as the plants are flowering. Get it down into the ground. Um, you know, you could even wide drop it, whatever, drop it on the ground, get it rained in, but get nitrogen out there later in the season. Otherwise, if you have high organic matter and you have a little bit of carryover nitrogen, you should be in good shape anyway. Okay, got one from Jerry here, and he said, I've been with Brian and Darren since around 2000 when we were on our dairy farm in Minnesota. I now live in Wyoming, tried to get my family to settle just north of where they are located in South Dakota, but didn't work out. Anyway, wanted to tell you guys thanks. I know those in agriculture appreciate what you're doing for your fellow farmers. Hey, thanks, Jerry. Really appreciate that. That's really nice. Got one from Zeus. He said Brian talks about he had to burn corn up because it was so cheap back in the day. I didn't well, have ten to. Ten years later, I, I corn's only three around. bucks. <laughs> Bet those savings would be way up for him if he used it for heating or drying corn, etc. Yeah, I, so I, I just make this joke every once in a while. Back in the fall of 2005, corn bottomed out at a dollar and thirty cents. It seems like forever ago when we had a dollar and thirty cent corn. You might say, "Oh, we didn't have that." I mean, that was back in the seventies. No, that was two thousand and five. And I was so mad that fall. I said, "I am not selling my corn for a dollar and thirty cents. I'll burn it up before I sell it." And of course, I'm just joking around. But I I bought a corn furnace, and I figured at the time it was one sixth the price to heat my house. Now today, if you look at propane. Um, I don't remember what the propane price was then, but I'll bet you anything that our pro propane price today is way lower. Natural gas should be lower. I mean, you, you know what's going on with that. And the United States is now energy independent and things like that. So I don't know that you'd have the same thing. And I certainly know that $3 corn is worth something and we can make money on ground that we already have paid for. We can still make money at $3 corn. Yep. Thanks for the comment, Zeus. Really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. Now, stay tuned for Rob Sharkey and Shark Farmer Radio. <laughs>